Hello there, it's the Whole Tooth Podcast, back for another series. I'm Fintan Harahan, Chief Executive of the Irish Dental Association. I'm host of this round of episodes as we delve into the issues affecting dentists and dental practitioners, the length and breadth of the country. We'll mark the association's centenary year as we reminisce over the past 100 years and assess where dentistry is right now and where it's going. But let's go back before we go forward. To open the series, we're joined by historian Owen Kinsella, who's been tasked with writing a book about the history of the Irish Dental Association. It's a particular pleasure to welcome you, Owen. Um, Can I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all, about your academic background, other historic publications and others that you're working on, which will soon be published? Yeah, hi, Vinton. It's uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you for this. yeah, I suppose I I did my PhD and and BA at UCD and had doctoral and postdoctoral scholarships there. And last summer I took over as managing editor of the Dictionary of Irish Biography with the Royal Irish Academy. Um, before that, about ten years ago, I set up my own research company, so offering kind of research services and historical consultancy to bodies such as the IDA. And I've worked at DCU, I've worked at the Department of the Taoiseach, and a whole range of kind of private and public bodies as well, working on mostly heritage projects, also commemorative projects, very similar to this centenary history, um, exhibitions, things like that. So in the last in the last six years, this this will be my fifth book, I suppose, in the last six years. So there's been a lot of a lot of uh, work and a lot of research gone into those kinds of things and similar to to what we've worked on for this book here as well. And it's it's um it's been a very interesting and very busy period and obviously with the decade of centenaries and the whole range of centenaries that are happening at the moment, it's been a really interesting period to work in Irish history. Very good. And how did you feel when you were first asked to write the history of the Irish Dental Association? Well, I'll be honest, I didn't really know much about the association. Um, uh, so when, when I suppose, when we when we first started talking about it, and we first started talking about it, I think back in, in 2018, and at that time I actually sat down with Barry Harrington, who obviously is a, a former president and very, very heavily involved with the association for a long time. And I just got a sense of, of what the association's work was like and I started doing a little bit of digging then into what kind of records might be available to me and what kind of research might what kind of approach I might have to adopt to do the book and I put together a proposal for you and we agreed on it and then once I began working on it it was um it was a real eye opener. It's a very. It, I thought it would be relatively straightforward. I thought it would be just working on the association itself and its work. But of course, once you start digging into it, you you see just how embedded within the broader the broader sort of I suppose policy range of of Irish health uh, the dentistry is. And when you start researching the history of dentists and the Irish Dental Association, you're really researching the history of Irish health as well. So you have to kind of contextualise and bring it in in that respect as well. And that's been it's been really eye-opening for me to kind of get involved in that world. So how do you go about researching the history of the association? There's, there's some uh, sources probably readily available. And I suppose in some ways people might think it might be easier to prepare the recent history rather than the early history. Maybe that's not true. But how do you, how do you go about researching the history of the, an association like the Irish Dental Association? There's, there's a few standard, you, you kind of adopt a fairly standard approach for projects like this and, and you tailor them as you kind of get deeper into the research process. So for something like the Irish Dental Association, which obviously has a lot of contacts with government, you start with, well, I certainly started with the National Archives of Ireland, which would have, you know, deposits from government departments stretching back to the foundation of the state and even even before that, but, and that wasn't strictly relevant in this instance. You always have to go as well, of course, to the association itself or to the organisation that you're working with itself and find out what kind of archival material they have. In, in this case, the idea doesn't have a huge amount from prior to the turn of the millennium even there's, there's not a huge amount there now I was able to build up a, a good picture from 
different sources. The newspapers were a major source for us. We were able to get some quite a lot of stuff actually from from government records from the Department of the Taoiseach, the um, the President's office as well. Uh, so those kinds of things were were the mainstay. And then when you get into more modern times, more modern periods, you have things like. Cheeta, of course, you have the IDA News, which was which is very very useful. Although copies of that are very very hard to come by, um, and you have from the from around two thousand onwards, we were able to, I was able to work through minutes of the board of directors, the management committee, things of like that as well. So you start to build up a big picture. So ordinarily with a centenary history, the closer you get to the current date, the more you start to taper off a little bit because it's very very difficult to capture the kind of range of work that's being done with the association because we were. We were very light, I suppose, on material for the middle part of the 20th century. We actually ended up doing quite a bit of work on the last 20 to 30 years, well, 40 years or so, because it, well, it's so interesting and there's so much interesting work being done by the association and in collaboration both with, with the government and on its own initiatives as well with, with CPD, things like that. So, you know, we, we were able to kind of, I suppose, draw on a lot more elements and a lot more strands than I was expecting at the start. And I think it's fair to say that the 50-year history of the association by Dr. John Lee was a, a, a great starting point for you. But also, you were struck, I think, by the uh, availability and the assistance offered by the British Dental Association. Yeah, we, we were we were very fortunate. And, and I've always been very fortunate, I suppose, in the projects that I've worked on. When you, when you engage with places like the National Archives or with the British Dental Association's Library and Museum, what you find is that librarians and archivists are incredibly eager to help and and to sort of share the knowledge that they have. And projects like this, they're not really possible without that kind of help. And within the British Dental Association, Helen Neal in particular and Rachel Beristow, they were they were brilliant in terms of providing us with copies of the BDA's journal, stretching back to the late 19th century. And they literally scanned every page that had a mention of the Irish branch or the Irish Dental Association uh, and sent them to us, which was like I said, incredibly useful. They had photographs as well, stretching back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries as well, when there was an Irish branch of the British Dental Association and they shared those with us. So that was, yeah, that was incredibly, incredibly useful for us. And, you know, we got we got similar cooperation and similar help from a range of different organisations, including the RCSI and from the Dublin Dental University Hospital and from a lot of people who would have been working within those institutions as well. And as we know, the history and the establishment of the Irish Dental Association is inextricably linked with the British Dental Association. So can you tell us how the Irish Dental Association came into existence? Yeah, and, and I suppose just as well, just to go back to, to your last point, and just to mention, you mentioned uh, Dr. John Lee, his history, his Golden Jubilee history of the association, that was incredibly useful to us. And it, it helped us to, to inform a lot of the early part of the book because the, those records, a lot of the records that he would have had relied on even 50 years ago, and even 20 years ago when he did the history of the Dublin Dental University Hospital, um, those records are no longer available to us. So that was they were incredibly useful, um, but yeah. So the the IDA obviously its its origins lie in the Irish branch of the British Dental Association, uh, which was set up in 1887. That's just seven years after the BDA its, itself is set up, and that is that's the starting point for any kind of history of the IDA because it's from the Irish branch that the IDA then develops in 1922. Um, wh- what you have, I suppose, is uh, it's part of a broader trend, and it's part of a broader trend within dentistry, but also within all aspects of society from sports right through to the, the different professions is this need to organize to professionalize and to put structures and rules in place you see this with sports a lot of the sporting organizations of the time are, are born in the late 19th century and you see similar obviously with with medicine and with with dentistry as well the bda was 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 put in place to professionalize to a degree 
um, dentistry and the Irish branch was formed in 1887 by Irish dentists who saw this happening and said we want to be a part of this as well and the best way for us to do that is to become an Irish branch of the British Dental Association. So that's set up formally, I think it meets formally for the first time in December 1887. Okay, and then if we jump forward, we all know that the start of the early 20th century was uh, a period of turmoil in Irish history and you know, dentistry, I suppose, was was also caught up in uh, uh, the period of reform and change. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's just after, so with the Anglo-Irish Treaty in, in December 1921, that's ratified by Dáil Éireann in, on the 7th of January 1922. And just four or five weeks later, the Irish branch of the British Dental Association meets and decides to set up a subcommittee, which will investigate the possibility or the feasibility of creating an independent Irish Dental Association, which it does, and it investigates that over the next, you know, nine to ten, eleven, twelve months. And as part of that, there was an initial hope that the this new IDA, this new Irish Association, would be an all island body. That doesn't happen. That doesn't transpire in the end. We, you see the separation between the Northern Irish branch of the British Dental Association and the Irish Dental Association as well. And I suppose it's important to to note that the separation here it's it, it wasn't driven by. A very strong sense of republican nationalism. It was just simply driven by the fact that there was an evolving national movement or an evolving government, provisional government of Ireland, and the the Irish members of the the British Dental Association felt that it would be best to to follow that lead and to set up. And the the separation from the BDA was very very amicable, and indeed the separation into Northern Irish and Irish Free State branches was very amicable as well. And relations between those three bodies were actually excellent for the most part over and have been continued to be excellent over the last century, which is quite interesting to see that there was very little acrimony over this and that the the movement was simply driven by a desire to follow what was happening in, in broader political circles. And so who were the key figures in the establishment of the Irish Dental Association? Yeah, there's, there's there's a couple who who were there. The the, the chairman of the the subcommittee that set up in February 1922 was a man called Walby, who was an English dentist. Actually, had been practicing in Ireland for a long time. Um, the secretary was was James Hogan, James E. Hogan, to give him his full his full name. Um, he goes on to become a very very prominent member of the association. In fact, it was Hogan. He's, he's president of the association. I think in in 1927, and he actually gifted the current chain of office to the association in that year as a memento of his own presidency. Uh, he's very very important. You know, it's it's. I, I want to mention as well a, a man named Arthur. Baker, who was a founding member of the Irish branch in 1887, and he's the only person then who's a founding member of the IDA then again in 1922. Very interesting character. Um, he was a member of the Officer Training Corps in Trinity College Dublin, was given a citation for his defence of Trinity College Dublin during the 1916 Rising, and there's actually a plaque, a plaque in his memory in St. Anne's um, Church on Dawson Street. Anybody can walk in and, and have a look and see that. So again, just somebody who had a, a, a long-standing connection with the association. And people like that, I suppose, were, were important in terms of getting the, the IDA up off its feet in, in 1922. And in terms of the initial challenges and priorities for the profession and the fledging Irish Dental Association, what were the preoccupations of Irish dentists at the time? Well, it, it was a very different... They had very different preoccupations to what the IDA would have now. And the main one, of course, and it's tied up with, I suppose, the relatively messy sort of circumstances that arise when you create a new state is was the applicability of British legislation in the Irish Free State. And in, in 1921, new dental legislation had just been introduced by Britain. There was an immediate question about whether or not that legislation was applicable in the Free State in Ireland. Um, as part of that legislation, there was a new dental register put in place. 
there were questions and the dental register, the UK dental register threatened, it might, might be strong, too strong a word, but certainly said that Irish dentists couldn't be registered on that register anymore unless there was sufficient legislative provision put in place in Ireland. Now it takes until 1927, 1928 for that legislation to actually be put in place, which causes its own issues for the profession. And one of the main preoccupations of the Irish branch in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and it continues to be one of the main preoccupations of the IDA in the 1920s and 30s is quackery, in inverted commas, people who are practising as dentists who had no formal qualifications and bearing in mind that sort of formal qualifications for dentistry had, had come in as licentiates um, and then of course you had the bachelor the degrees in 19, in the early 20th century as well so the qualifications the roots of qualification were there and the IDA was very concerned with making sure that the only people who were offering dental services in, in Ireland were suitably qualified and without the legislation in place in 1928, you had no formal means of preventing people from anyone advertising themselves as a dentist and practicing as such. So that's one of the main reasons and one of the major preoccupations for the IDA through the 1920s is to get that legislation on the books, which finally happens in 1928. And it took another 60 years before it was <laughs> revisited and it's long overdue <laughs> long right now. Long overdue since then, yeah. So obviously we're not we're not going to go through all the 100 years, but the, clearly there were some figures who emerge as leading figures within the profession and the association. So if, if it's not un, too unfair a question, are there, you know, a small number of people who you said, you know, absolutely made an outstanding contribution and, you know, uh, deserved particular attention in, in the history? Yeah, and it, it, it is, I, I, always, I always find these kinds of questions very difficult because you're looking at a you're looking at a century of history for one thing, but you're also a lot of the the work that we do when you're researching these kinds of um, associations is it, it tends to be very central centrally focused. So you tend to see only the people who hold the the, the main offices. So you see the president, the honorary treasurer, the honorary secretary, who all do incredibly important work. You don't get the sense, and you don't get the chance to explore the work that's being done, let's say, in the regional branches for in the associations case, or people who are working behind the scenes who are doing incredible work but just it's it's not as visible with with that having said that i mean there were obviously there were some very important figures i mentioned james hogan already um way back at the start to people like daniel corbett and richard theodore stack who were incredibly important in not just for the association or for the irish branch but also in the overall development of dentistry as a profession in ireland and the establishment of the incorporated dental hospital and the different the different dental schools that are set up uh, around the island and um, they're very important figures in you know in the middle and in the early days then you have people like um uh, sheldon freel um who again is a very prominent member of the profession and a president of the of the association does an awful lot for the association but probably is more well recognized just as a dentist and for his his dentistry um and speaking with my sort of with my newer hat on as a sort of the, the managing editor of the dictionary of irish biography there's two dentists in that and who have merited an entry so far there john lee who we've mentioned before again not just because he was the ida's first historian but also because he was a very very prominent and well um you know well-renowned, well-known dentist. This Adrian Cowan as well, who, again, had a huge reputation internationally and received all sorts of recognition internationally for his work as a dentist, was heavily involved in the push for fluoridation in Ireland in the late 50s, 1960s, and, again, would have been a president of the association in 1978 as well. 
in more modern times, you know, there's there's a lot of different figures, and it's probably, you know, I, I'd hesitate just to single out one or two uh, from more modern times because so many different people. I mean, to give one example, one person who uh, I heard a lot about, and we mentioned a couple of times in the history, but from what I understand, I mean, his work was was Trojan on the association's behalf, but he never held the office of president. Uh, Joe Maloney and people like that who do huge amount of work behind the scene and are well known throughout the association but visible on, on the face of it they're not the people whose names are on documents not the people who are front and centre and being quoted in the newspapers and they're not the kind of people that historical research can sometimes will, will sometimes overlook if you're not sitting down and talking to the people themselves who, who've been involved with the association for the last few years and you know ultimately the association is a representative body and there were certain key milestones in terms of its role and I'm thinking of things like the introduction of the state dental schemes and the Dentist Act of 1985. What struck you as being the most significant milestones in terms of the role of the association as a representative body? Uh, it, it's it's kind of, it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process, I think, in from the 1930s onwards. I think the 19 in the 1920s, the advocacy that the association does is on behalf of the broader profession in terms of putting legislation on the table and getting legislation on the books and that's that's achieved and in the 1930s from what I could see the one of the earliest instances of let's say advocacy on, be, on, be, on behalf of individual members or specific sections of the profession is when the association takes up the cause of dentists working with the defence forces and arguing over their terms and conditions the lack of well the I suppose the paucity of their terms and conditions, the lack of progression that they have, and that's that's an issue that they they follow up for the 1930s. They pick it up again in in the late 1940s after the emergency. Um, that's that's kind of one of the main, I suppose, indicators or, or beginnings of of its work as a as a I suppose as a body representing individual members. And in in 1938, then you have the public dental surgeons group set up, which is the the forebear of the current agency dentists, and, and has had various different names over the last 70 odd years or so. Um, that's set up because of the fact that. It's a recognition of the fact that those working in the public dental sector and those working in private practice sometimes have different and, and sometimes competing objectives and priorities. So, And I think that's really important to note, and it's an important point in the association's history, is that you don't have a split at this point between, let's say, private and, and public dentists. You have the two groups working together within the same association and very often supporting each other. Occasionally, they have different, like I said, competing priorities, but certainly working together on different occasions um, and especially from the 70s onwards when you see the, the growing influence and the growing impact of government and, and publicly funded dental treatment services. And you've touched on a point there, you know, the the profession, I suppose, I characterise as probably stubbornly independent is probably an appropriate way of putting it in terms of its dealing with the state over the, the last hundred years. I mean, there are some obvious uh incidences and, and, and episodes, whether it's introducing schemes or, you know, legislation. What impressions did you take as regards the interaction of the association and the various arms of the state? Yeah, and, and I'm conscious that a lot of the time the the what tends to make headlines and what tends to be newsworthy is is conflict. So conflict is something that, that, that crops up regularly enough, but at the same time there are and conflict is sometimes a necessary part, I think, of negotiation and of of actually working together. Um, so, f- from certainly from the seventies onwards, you you, you see the, the the relationship. It has its moments of cooperation, and it has its moments which lead to genuine breakthroughs. And 
you know, one of the main ones I'd point to actually is is fluoridation, and that's not an association initiative, but it's certainly one that the association supported and very heavily backed, and would have been front and center in terms of the public relations um, campaign around convincing people and combating the the anti fluoridation groups that were set up sometimes from from with funding from outside the state uh, and combating their their publicity as well. So that's that's an element where you see a very very strong state and association cooperation in the 70s as well you see very strong state and uh, association cooperation when you have the dental treatment benefit scheme set up initially to get agreement over how that's going to be run and in the 90s then of course in in 94 when the dental treatment services scheme is set up you have very strong cooperation between the association and the department of health and department of social welfare under its very various different names um in terms of getting those schemes off the ground the conflict then, of course, arises when there's differences of opinion over how those schemes should be should be run, and that's something that is very clear and very very strong. Is that there's a, a gradual deterioration at times, and it it, beco- it can become very very it can become quite nasty in terms of the this, the the interaction, and you see it come across in the newspapers as well, in the quotes and in the in the the comments that are made on both sides. And then, you know, there's there's an antagonism there that wasn't there initially uh, in the 70s and 80s. Certainly, it becomes more evident in the, in in the 90s. Um, and it depends as well on on I think on the the economic situation. It's very very important in in terms of sort of contextualizing how the associations' relations with with the government is, is stands. And you've some terrific uh, stories about you know. Uh, I suppose industrial relations, you might call it, at, at a local level in the book, and I won't spoil, give away all all your 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 best yarns from the book. But one thing I was struck by was that so the association is a registered trade union. It secured that in 2011, but in fact, the first discussion around becoming a trade union started a long time back. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I, I think this this is of a piece, and it arises from, like I mentioned before, that growing expansion of state-funded or publicly funded dental schemes in, in, in the 1970s when when there's disagreement arises over the best course for these schemes to be run that leads to extended negotiations and it leads to I suppose difficulties in terms of the association's relationship with the government and in early 1974 the Munster branch the Munster branch actually proposes that the IDA would set itself up as a trade union. Now, prior to that, in 1963, it had applied for and received accepted body status under the 1942 Trade Union Act that gave it the right to negotiate on behalf of its members, but it didn't give it the right to have, it didn't, wasn't a full trade union status. So you couldn't do fully what a trade union might be able to do in certain situations like that. Um, so in, in, like I said, in early 1974, the Munster branch decides that this is a good idea and pushes very strongly for this to happen. They set up a union action committee, they survey um, dentists in Cork City and they say, that they get an 86% positive response rate in favour of forming uh, an Irish dentist union and they also have opened up discussions with the Irish Medical Union at the time to say that and the, the IMU actually agrees that if sufficient numbers of dentists apply they will accept them as members. Now the IDA's executive council has different a different idea and they're certainly a little bit upset and annoyed that Munster Branch has taken this initiative on by themselves. So they, I mean, they... They initially slap down, if you like, the idea that there will be a union, but they do set up a committee to actually investigate the proposal. And that committee then reports later on in the year and they they say no. They say there's no there's no need for there to be a union that they have everything they need with accepted body status. Uh, So there's huge tension between Munster Branch and the Executive Council at this stage. And Executive Council puts out a survey to all its members, which gets a very low response rate. And also then 
the, of the responses, I think it's in around 30% of dentists say that they would be in favour of there being a union. So the idea is quashed and the idea is put, put to bed, um, much to the disappointment of the Munster branch members. And I think it's probably worth saying as well that it's not entirely clear if this was a, a broad Munster branch proposal or if there were a few figures within Munster Branch who were pushing it and, and had the, the idea to, to set up the union. So that's just one element and one instance of, I suppose, conflict that is inevitable uh, between not just, I suppose, the different types of professions, whether public or private, but also the regions and the different uh, and, and how the association has sometimes had to deal with conflicting opinions within its within its ranks, of course. And that's, a, 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 I suppose, a, a common part of any so national association certainly is. And I think you were um, fortunate to receive some archives from the Munster branch, which which must have helped. But you, you had other instances of where the, the, the branches asserted their independence throughout and, you know, were, were uh, vocal in, in setting out uh, different ideas uh, or, you know, uh, different approaches they wanted the, the national executive to take and that's well chronicled in the book isn't it yeah there, there was one other well there's a couple of instances i mean there's uh, at one point um disagreement over negotiations with with the department of health um led to the withdrawal of most of the members of the western branch that's in in late 90s and they rejoined the following year but it's i suppose it's an indication that there was a discussion and a disagreement over the approach that the association was go- was going to take uh, in the late 90s and this is during Barry Harrington's term as president and there was a proposal to change the system whereby the president of the association was elected and at that time um, it was a, it was a rotational system between all the regional branches and the HBDS group the health board dental surgeons group and metropolitan branch and metropolitan branch had you know, it's the biggest branch by a considerable margin but it had the choice every second year whereas the regions then rotated which meant that a, let's say a suitably qualified person from Munster branch could only be put forth for nomination once every 20 years. So there was an attempt to reform that. That's passed at, I think it's the 1997 or 1998 AGM, I can't remember which. Um, but then very quickly afterwards, Metro Branch decides that they don't like this change to its powers. And they they um, they, they issue a very, very strong, I suppose, dissent to this. And they, cause, they actually cause the, the decision to be reversed. But it's kind of a tactical withdrawal by, by council because they then set up another committee to look at it and come up with new proposals, which at the time then said that Metro would have the choice six times over the next 20 years, which, which would have brought us up to 2020. Now, there's been changes in, in the meantime since, but and there would have been a greater voice for council and for the regions as well on that behalf. But again, it's just an in, in, instance of you know inter, inter-association inter conflict, which I thought was quite fascinating and quite interesting to see in, in action. And of course, the branches historically would have had um, a strong role in, and still do, uh, in the provision of uh, scientific education for, for dentists. And I think one of the things that you also um, capture very effectively is the outward looking um, disposition of the association leadership and its connections with international organisations such as FDI, the World Dental Federation, the American Dental Association, the British Dental Association and the Council of European Dentists. Does it strike you that uh, that was you know, pretty much the norm or um, what, was there in fact a, a strong sense of looking outward from an early stage? I think it was there from from an early point. I think the membership of the FDI comes in the 1930s, if I if I remember correctly. I did come across a a newspaper report 
and photograph of the of the IDA hosting the Canadian Dental Association for a dinner in the Shelburne Hotel in, I think it was 1932, might have been 1933. Uh, so those kind of links and those kind of connections were there very early on and they're, they actually become an important part of the association's development, um, not just in terms of, I suppose, as a professional organisation, but also as an organisation that is the leading provider or often the only provider of kind of that continuing professional education or development as, as as whatever way it's whatever term is used at the time and it uses its international connections to bring in speakers and to bring in um scientific new scientific methods um and that's that's kind of a very very important part of its of its development from from the 1930s onwards and those kind of links are put to, to very good use at different times um during, again, during the debate over fluoridation, and this is something that I came across recently enough, and again, it was in it shows the value of personal recollection. And part of the research that I did for the book, of course, was sitting down and, and interviewing people, but also just getting them to send me their own reminiscences and their own experiences of working with the association. And one of the ones that was shared with me again by by Barry Harrington was that the association, um, when the Pure Water Association, which was anti-fluoridation, and on Reagut, which is another um, anti-fluoridation group, when they set up their, when they began to really work against or pub- pull out a lot of publicity against fluoridation in Ireland, the IDA got in touch with the American Dental Association again, which with which it would have had a lot of connections over the over the previous couple of decades, and asked for their assistance. And they had the ADA had put together a pamphlet or a leaflet outlining the benefits of fluoridation and that pamphlet then was reproduced in Ireland almost word for word and put out under the name of the Irish Dental Association. So those kinds of links and connections were, were, were very, very important. You had the, the Federation Dentaire Internationale, the FDI, that held its, its, its annual general meeting in Dublin in 1948 and again in 1960. And so those connections were, were very, very important. They, you know, delegations would have gone to see the president in Orson Uthron and would have, again would have addressed the, the AGM as well at, at, for the IDA. So again, you know, those, those dental connections or those international connections have been a very important part of the association's development and not to not to go on about it but i just just while i'm while i'm talking through it i'm thinking as well in terms of preparations for our membership of the eec in 1973 the idea set up a european committee a subcommittee um to prepare for that and to make sure that the association and the profession was properly prepared for uh, having its, its its qualifications recognised in all European countries, so that they, there could be that kind of ability to work abroad as well, and you know those kinds of connections again were were, were hugely important for the association development. And you've handed over your draft to the publisher. It's over sixty thousand words. There are sixty pages of photographs of many leading dentists, many. I suppose we'd regard them as regular members of the association, but also leading political figures, including quite a number of Taoiseach, presidents, ministers who who interacted with the association. And that's a great feature uh, of the book. Can I ask you, you know, are there any consistent themes or trends which which recur over the over the century? One of the ones that that, that com- comes up again and again is advocacy on on the part the association's advocacy on for oral health. I mean that's there from the very, 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 very beginning. In in, in 1923, the the Governor General of Ireland, Tim Healy, who incidentally was he was a former senior counsel um, prior to uh, Swiss independence, and he actually represented the IDA in quite a few legal cases um, where they were trying to stamp out quackery. So they, he had a long connection with with the association even before he became Governor General, which was a bit of an empty. You know, it was a, a, a bit of a ceremonial office, obviously, from between 1922 and 1937. But anyway, he he gave a speech at the association's first annual general dinner, which is in November 1923. And he talked about the importance of dental health and providing 
dental treatment to people from poor backgrounds, people from socioeconomic disadvantaged um, areas as well. And that's a theme that continues throughout the association's um, advocacy, not just on behalf of dentists and their profession, but also in terms of its work for making sure that the DTBS and the DTSS work well. And sometimes I think that messaging can be difficult to get across that a lot of the work, that a lot of the conflict there is over making sure that the system works and the schemes work the best for the people most in need. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the, the consistent themes that I thought came across in the book. Um, again, this was being led by best international practice or best best professional and dental practice. That's a theme that comes across, I think, or we've tried to put across in the book as well, um, to have, to make sure that, just to make sure that the, the, the members of the profession here are up to date in the scientific methods and in terms of the, the materials that they use. Um, so that's part of the, the association's remit and has been for, for quite a long time. And to bring it right up to date, uh, you cover extensively the challenges posed by the pandemic and the, the work of the association in, in supporting its members. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, that my co-author, um, Francis Nolan, and, and I really wanted to make sure to, to bring across because it, it's such a, it was such a... Um, it was such an important moment, I suppose, not just for, for dentistry or for the profession, but for the wider medical uh, medical professional field and for, for society in general. And dentistry struck me as a in a fairly unique position in that you're dealing with people who've got their mouths open all day and you're dealing with a disease that's highly transmissible. Um, so I, how, how does it react and how does it deal with that? And you know, working on that is is quite difficult as well to a degree because you're you're working on really really recent events. So it's it's very much it's very fresh and it's it's more a case of just trying to get down details as much as you can without too much in the way of analysis. Or so just to see that how the association and the the disagreements that would have been over how to be, how to approach it. It's how to approach sort of I suppose advice for dentists and how how to how to practice once um, practices were allowed to reopen. Uh, it's links with with the HSC uh, with. Professor Martin Cormican as well, in particular, in terms of trying to find out the best methods for these for these dental practices to reopen. It's it's a really interesting period, and and we tried to deal with it as as best we could, given how fresh it was in everyone's mind. And we were very able, we're lucky to be able to talk to people like yourself and people like Emma Croak, who are at the forefront in terms of dealing with the, the HTC and, and kind of representing the the profession. So my opening question was, you know, how you felt when you were first asked to prepare the history. You handed over the manuscript at this day. So what are your reflections now, having laboured for the last number of years and preparing the history? Yeah, it's it was just, like I said, it was something that I, I was expecting to be relatively straightforward and it ended up being much more involved and much more detailed than, than I had expected. And because you're dealing with a century of history, you're, you're, you're dealing with a century of broader Irish history as well and you're trying to contextualise what the association does and how it works within things like, you know, um, when, when the dental, when the DTBS is in place, we're in the middle of an economic crisis. And from 2008 onwards, we're in the middle of another economic crisis. These have enormous impacts on how, on the association's work because it just, it impacts on on what it's, I suppose, its main its main focuses are for, on that respect and, and it puts an awful lot of plans to one side and things that would have been a part of the association's history are now put to one side and that's to me it's interesting to see those kind of things play out and to see how the association has helped to shape health policy and oral health policy as best it can when its voice is heard um you know those those are uh, to me were, were fascinating parts of 
of the work and of the research and I know Francis and I had a, we really enjoyed actually digging into certainly the earlier part as well as really digging into the development of dentistry as a profession and that was kind of a rabbit hole that we had to avoid going down sometimes was that it was a, a history of the association not of the profession so sometimes we would we would go down this particular research trail and then realise no we actually can't we can't use that because it's as interesting as it is it's, it's not relevant and we didn't want to come come up with a three volume history that nobody would read we wanted to have something that would be accessible and, and readable for everybody you know well, I think you've uh, achieved that as being uh, a great production. It's been great personally for myself working with you. How will listeners be able to get hold of the, the book? What's happening next? Well, next we have, I think, well, I think that there are a couple of things in, in place. There's There'll be um, a documentary on, on the IDA uh, in, in early May and we'll t- probably talk a little bit about the book then uh, the book is being published by Eastwood Books they're an imprint of Wordwell who look after Wordwell Books a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with Books Ireland and with um, History Ireland and Archaeology Ireland their magazines so they're a, a very well established and, and well renowned publisher they're going to have the book out and ready for us for the for the annual conference so we'll have a a launch i think at the annual conference and it'll be available from from wordwell's website and from as they say all all good bookshops from from early may onwards and i should also say that yourself and francis will be in kilkenny and you will address the annual conference um to coincide with the the formal launch yeah looking forward to it nervous about standing up in front of <laughs> in front of um the dental profession and telling them about about their own history but i uh, know it should be it should be a lot of fun well, Owen, look, that's been terrific. I can vouch for the fact that it's a great read. I think our listeners will get terrific enjoyment and they, they'll be informed and educated. And I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the next century will, will be just as interesting. So, Owen, it's been fascinating speaking with you today. We look forward to reading the book. Owen Kinsella, author, historian and man of many talents. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Vincent. That concludes this instalment of The Whole Tooth. You can follow the Irish Dental Association on Twitter at Irish Dentists or visit our website, dentist.ie, for a full list of upcoming events to mark this our centenary year. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.